Welcome to the Grant's Interest Rate Observer Podcast. I am Jim Grant, and with me today is Evan Lorenz, the great Lorenz, deputy editor of Grant's, and uh, Adam Rosenzweig, who is uh, an authority on commodities, and um, our guest, and welcome, Adam. It's lovely to have you here, and uh, Eric Whitehead of the Dials, as usual. Uh, before we get into Adam's line of work in commodities, and before we even get into the news of the day, I want to mention that we have a couple of sponsors for which we are grateful. One is uh, Casper Mattresses, which if you want a good night's sleep, look no further. And the other is eFinancial Careers. You'll be hearing about both in the uh, hours to come. This is going to be, we have, to, we have some stuff to talk about, Adam. And evidence, this might go on a while. Evan, have you noticed something strange about the president. I mean, strange in the sense that he says one thing and then he says another thing. For example, when he was campaigning, he campaigned against Goldman Sachs. He campaigned against the Fed and he campaigned against the stock market, right? Yeah. I remember as if it were yesterday. And now, what's he talking about? I mean, he, says he, he tweeted this morning, we're talking about Friday, what is it, the 29th of September? All day? Okay. The S&P is at a new high. Bang. That's the big, fat, ugly bubble, no? Well, according to Robert Schiller's uh, cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio, the market's only been more expensive in 1929 in the dot-com uh, era, yeah. which were, were great times uh, prospectively for uh, for investing. Yeah. All right. So he ran against the Fed. And then, and uh, I, I, well, the news this morning is that he has uh, actually been in touch and indeed has met personally with Kevin Warsh, as if uh, to suggest that Kevin might be having a, a, a new job in the federal government, perhaps at the head of the Fed. Now, Kevin spoke at a grants conference, what, was it a year ago? A uh, year and a half. year and a half ago, perhaps. And he, he, he sounded kind of like a grants guy, right? He, he, he uh, uh, regretted the uh, subsequent iterations of QE beyond the first one. Well, it's not a pure grants line. We regretted the whole thing, starting in 1913. But uh, Kevin was uh, kind of a, against the perpetuation of the ZERP. He was for the price discovery mechanism. He was kind of what we were for, right? Yeah. His refrain was, uh, first do no harm. Yeah. Well, it's not, it's not a bad way to approach things in life. But I thought, uh, Evan, I thought that uh, the Trump was going to go after, uh, well, Gary Cohn upstaged me, high-hatted him by assuming a higher moral posture than his boss. That's never a good, uh, Adam, I wouldn't suggest that for you either. And you're, okay. So uh, Gary's off uh, the reservation and out of consideration, I guess. You got to expect that. But um, I, I kind of thought that Trump would follow through on his confession that he is a low interest rate guy, right? He's a real estate speculator. What he wants is lower rates and not paying the loans back. Yeah. The only unfortunate thing is what, what he wants uh, economically kind of uh, conflicts with, I, I guess, personal squabbles. Yeah. We'll know more in five years, we always say around here. Hey, a word about eFinancial Careers, the world's leading financial services career website. Now, um, you can go on this site and discover career-changing opportunities across the industry from uh, the so-called bulge bracket to the uh, niche variety. I would call us niche, wouldn't you, uh, Evan? Uh, that's how most people characterize us. I don't know. Adam, what do you think? A kind of bulge bracket in the universe of uh, fortnightly interest rate commentary, though? I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, you go on the site and you can create a profile that recruiters easily match you to their open roles and uh, uh, you can save jobs and create alerts and stay informed and upload your resume and cover letter to quickly apply for jobs. I noticed they split the infinitive there, but uh, it's by the by. So do check out the site at efinancialcareers.com, efinancialcareers.com and tell them that Grant sent you. Adam Rosenzweig, you and your partner, Lee Gehring, at uh, Gehring and Rosenzweig Associates are in the business of buying commodities. Isn't that a peculiar thing to do in a time of, of the perhaps eternal commodity bear market? 
I think being a active manager in the commodity space right now, we're in a universe of uh, very, very few people and certainly a strange time for many to, to launch such a, such a product. That's a twofer, active commodity. You know, uh, uh, you and uh, and Lee were very helpful to Grants, uh, I don't know how many months ago, six months perhaps? Anyway, you had the most coherent and most persuasive full story on energy, on crude oil, I think especially. And uh, I know you look at the screen and suddenly there's a five in front of the one or two with respect to the oil price. And I think when we talked, it was $10 or so lower. That's right. Could you bring us up to date on what you're thinking about to oil and gas? Absolutely. And, and first off, thanks so much for having me here today. The oil market today is in a really interesting period. And I say that because for the first time now in three years, we're very, very near to an inflection point for crude prices and for the supply-demand fundamentals. When we spoke earlier in the year, we felt that the market had quietly slipped into deficit probably at the end of 2016. However, we had a very large inventory overhang in the system that was largely a result of all the increased production coming out of OPEC when they abandoned their production quotas in 2014. Where we stand today, six months later, is that the inventories have drawn down very, very sharply over the last six months, and we're now approaching a period where they should be normalized as soon as the first quarter of 2018 relative to long-term averages. And historically, that's been a period when that happens, prices start to move very, very sharply and typically have averaged between $75 and $100 a barrel, which I know sounds Sounds like a dramatic number, but historically when inventories do get down to that average level, that's when you start to see the price action start to move. So the fundamentals have improved. They've been improving now for about a year and a half. We've had this huge inventory overhang to work through, and that's largely left investors complacent. But for the first time now, we're, we're coming up to a point where, where that turn uh, and that inflection point is imminent. Now, where do you see prices going? We think that prices, as, as strange as it sounds, will hit $100 a barrel sometime next year. Um, we think that when you take inventories down to typically within plus or minus 20 million barrels uh, of inventories relative to the long-term averages, that's when you start to see a strong price move. And we think that you'll see that again this time. So $75 uh, is not a bad estimate for a sort of full cycle uh, equilibrium point, but the markets, as they do, can sometimes get ahead of themselves and investor psychology can switch from surplus fears to deficit fears, and that could easily take oil prices uh, higher. Now, um, uh, how would you play this as a speculator or an investor? It seems to me that uh, $100 oil, even $75 oil, opens up an enormous range of possibilities uh, from the uh, uh, downtrodden E&P producers to the highly leveraged ones, perhaps especially. What, what do sure. you think so in both As we do approach this inflection point, you start to see prices start to respond. There, there is a huge opportunity set for, for investors today. The Energy weighting in the S&P 500 today is about 5.5%. Uh, historically, it's, it's averaged closer to 9%. So investors are very, very underweight this sector. I would say a lot of investors have probably limited to no exposure in the sector. So the chance for somebody to really allocate into the energy space coming up in the next six months, I think will we'll have a huge potential opportunity as the rest of the market is sort of forced to, to play catch up in that regard. You know, if you look at it a different way, if you look at the price of commodities relative to the S&P 500, and that's an index that we've actually built and taken back all the way to 1900, you'll notice that there's only been two periods where you've been this cheap, commodities have been this cheap relative to the S&P. And the first time was in 1929, and the next time was in, was in 1969. Both times were phenomenal periods to, to become a commodity investor. So as far as individual subsectors in energy and energy versus the commodity, we see a lot of opportunities among high-quality E&P companies. 
But we also see a lot of opportunities, and this will be a very contrarian sort of a call, but a lot of opportunities in some of the offshore drilling stocks as well. These companies have had a terrible, endured a terrible bear market over the last five years. Uh, many of them are trading at upwards of 80 to 85% discounts to their book value, amazingly, tangible book value. Uh, some assets will be written off, some will be scrapped, but there's still a very, very large margin of safety there. And, and also, very interestingly, a lot of the companies that we look at in particular, they might have debt on their balance sheet, but they also have an ample amount of liquidity. They have cash, they have undrawn revolvers, they have no near-term maturities, and most of them are cash flow positive today. So we think that's setting up for a really, really interesting investment opportunity with valuation and, and high-quality yeah. balance sheets. Adam, what do you see with respect to the staying power of these prices you project? It's one thing to touch $75 on a spike. It's another thing for that price or higher to persist. So I think that the bear argument against oil prices for most of this year has been that if prices were to increase, the U.S. shales are going to come back in a very material way. Production is going to grow again, and you'll send the oil markets right back into surplus. What's been really interesting and not talked about nearly as much is that the United States shale projections this year seem to be falling very short. Earlier this year, the EIA and the IEA, so that's the Energy Information Agency here in the U.S. and the International Energy Agency abroad, projected that U.S. production would grow by about 700,000 barrels year on year this year. That works out to be about a million barrels, 1.1 million barrels from January to December, based on how the math is working. However, between February and June, that growth has only been 175,000 barrels over a couple months. So we think that there's a lot of faith being put in long-term shale projections, but as these companies drill out their core tier one inventories of wells that are very, very productive, and they move into the tier two and tier three, you might not see that production response quite as substantially as people believe. So I think that there's some staying power here, considering demand is running at very, very high levels, and supply response will likely be muted from the United States. Two, two questions with respect to the, uh, the kind of the structure of the market. One uh, is the, uh, is Aramco is going to sell some equity, and people with a, a somewhat cynical journalistic turn of mind or wondering whether the, the recent uptick in the price of energy might be engineered for the very purpose of getting off that IPO. What do you think? Intuitively, that you would think that that would be the case. Ramco is looking to list uh, as early as next year, and certainly a higher oil price would help with those valuations in that sale. Um, however, there's a lot going on in the kingdom right now. A lot of different dynamics are at play. And so well, women are driving. Have you ever heard of the likes of this before? It's crazy. It should be good for gasoline demand, I would think. <laughs> in any case, you know, last year, Saudi Arabia had a budget deficit of $80 billion. This year, that deficit's expected to be upwards of over $50 billion. So clearly, low oil prices are, are hurting the kingdom. Uh, just this week, they were a large issuer of, of sovereign debt. They did about $12.5 billion at fairly good uh, rates. They're the largest emerging market debt issuer uh, this year. And their foreign exchange reserves have, have drawn substantially from a peak of about $480 billion back in 2011. They're down nearly 35%. So clearly the Aramco IPO is playing into these budget issues, these budget concerns, and you would think that a higher oil price would be good for that. However, we have some concerns that perhaps the Aramco IPO might not go quite the way most people are expecting it. And the reason really comes down to the issue of audited reserve statements. So just going back a little bit, Saudi Arabia stopped reporting detailed audited reserve statements when it nationalized Aramco back in 1980. In 1988, they did release a new reserve statement, albeit not audited, and they reported to have 270 billion barrels of proved reserves at that point. And since then, they haven't 
lowered those reserve numbers at all, despite the fact that in that period they've produced 100 billion barrels out of the fields. Now, two new fields have come on in that time, the Curace field and the Manifa field, but those have largely gone to replace aging fields such as Gowar. So there's a big mystery surrounding what the true number for the Saudi oil reserves are. Um, the late Matt Simmons wrote in a book in, in the last middle part of last decade called Twilight in the Desert, raised these issues. The big question going forward for us is that if they now exist in a public entity and they have to bring in external reserve auditors, what that'll do to the reserve figures that they have to report. And the reason that's so important is that the OPEC quota system is largely based on the reserve levels of each country. So they're very incentivized to show high reserves. So we think that could be very complicated going okay. forward. One last thing on the structure of the market. Uh, there's been a huge amount of hedging activity at these levels. And do you find it uh, perhaps, uh, I don't know, is it, is it bullish, bearish, or not any of those two that the price has risen in the face of very determined hedging of sales? Well, the hedging issue is really interesting. Clearly, energy companies are concerned about their viability at prices uh, at these levels or below going into 2018 and feel the need to sort of lock in some of those prices. But again, getting back to what I said before, I think the most interesting dynamic from the U.S. shale producers is that so many of them are just missing their production guidance and what that has to in store for next year. You know, if you actually look in the second quarter, uh, fully 70% of the companies that reported missed their consensus production guidance in the second quarter. And 20% this year have lowered their, their guidance, and another 20% have kept production guidance but increased CapEx, which to us is saying that it's more difficult to produce. Well, you know, Evan, a $75 or $100 oil price is going to uh, ripple through many markets, not excluding uh, the interest rate markets. Yeah, the Fed will finally get its 2% inflation that it wants, although this will act as a pretty big tax on consumption. Yeah. What, it, as, as students of the commodity markets... Uh, oh, uh, Adam, I wanted to go back to something you said a moment ago. You said that 1929 was a good time to get long commodities. With that, uh, when did one sell them in 1930-something? I mean, what, what happened to commodity prices versus stocks in the 30s? Well, commodity prices uh, went on a phenomenal run uh, compared to the equity markets over the next uh, 15 years. Huh. Okay. To, to what extent is that just depreciating the dollar? Because the, the Fed, or the um, FDR basically depreciated the dollar against gold. It just became worth less, you know, relative to real money. Yeah, that's you, Adam. What do you think? <laughs> well, no, I mean, certainly, you know, in 1969, the, the commodity bull market that, that followed that was largely a function of, of, you know, finally abandoning the gold standard. But you do see these large reflationary cycles that take place going back over, you know, really 150 years. And is this, this, this is, we are on the cusp of another one, in your opinion? We, we do think so. You know, if you look at any of the metrics, whether, whether you're looking at uh, the, price of, uh, the price of oil or general commodities to any sort of other inflation-linked uh, assets, like the S&P I mentioned earlier, we do think that we're sort of at the bottom end of that range. And we will have an inflationary period. Which of your favorite, which of the other commodities might be your favorites in the long side? Well, as a... Apart from oil, we're really bullish on the global copper markets, and and for a few very interesting reasons. The first is that on the traditional sources of copper demand, that is, emerging markets starting to electrify uh, the countryside and starting to develop out their cities, we think there's a lot left to run in that theme. Particularly India now is starting to really see its copper demand move uh, as a result of electrifying a lot large part of that country that hadn't been before. But we see a secondary source of demand in the copper market as well. And that's coming from electric vehicles. There's been a lot of talk this year so far about lithium and the impact that EVs will have on the lithium market. But there's been less talk on copper. But copper, but uh, sorry, electric vehicles and particularly renewables powering electric vehicles 
will be hugely, hugely copper intensive. We, on our estimates, if you were to displace 1 million barrels per day of oil demand, which mind you, the world is growing at a million and a half barrels every year. So that's about eight months of demand growth. That would require doubling copper production growth over the next five to 10 years. Gold? We're bullish on gold as well. Um, you know, right now, we think that just given where energy is priced relative to precious metals, we think that energy is a very, very exciting place to be. And, and particularly since this inflection point that I talked about earlier is looking to take place here in the next uh, six months. But we are we are gold bulls as well and, and maintain a gold allocation. You know, I, I wonder how the commodity story is going to play out or would play out in the face of a bond market that is suddenly pushed off script um, and uh, is decidedly bearish. I mean, um, think of all the levered bond trades that are on. Think of all the possibilities for kind of a spring-loaded rise in rates should something as untoward and unscripted as a $100 oil price come to be. Um, what's going to happen to business activity if rates, uh, I mean, it's not so unthinkable to imagine a 4% funds rate. No, I mean, these things have happened in the past. 6% investment grade bond yields. I've, I've lived to see those. I'm, I'm, so um, in a world as levered as this, now we're getting in a very, very high level macro con conjuring, but in a world as levered as this, would much higher interest rates squelch or reverse this prospective commodity bull market you're seeing? So it's interesting. I think as far as asset prices are concerned, you could definitely see some dislocations if you had a sharp rise in interest rates, as you're talking about, or a big move towards inflation. However, you would expect as well some of these natural natural resource levered names to respond better than, than other assets in an inflationary environment. That's traditionally been a good time uh, to be a resource investor. Um, as far as its impact on demand and on business, I think the real question is going to be its impact on some of the emerging markets and whether or not increased inflation is coming as on the back of rising commodity prices based on strong emerging market demand uh, or, or whether or not it, it's some, it, it ends up becoming more of a, a curtailment to, to emerging demand. Do you trade financial instruments as well? For example, you got a position in the bond market? We, we purchased some uh, fixed income securities last year, energy-related fixed income, uh, as those assets became very, very distressed, particularly in February of last year. Yeah. But traditionally, we focus mostly on the equities. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is merely fascinating. I, I, um, I think this is a, a contrarian festival we got going this morning, Evan. I mean, we, have, uh, we have a guy right in front of us, Adam, Adam Rosenzweig, who is an active manager of commodities and who is calling for $100, perhaps, or $75 per barrel oil price. You don't get any more contrary than this. Well, we've been contrarian investors for a long time. We think that traditionally the best time to get involved is when the large part of the market has no interest whatsoever. People are bearish. Companies are typically operating in, in financial pain, some level of financial pain. And yet the supply demand fundamentals have turned positive and everyone's ignoring them. And that's where we are today. You know, inventories were very, very high. And as a result, everyone's ignoring the speed at which they're drawing down. They've repaired themselves by 50% already. And uh, we believe that that inflection point is going to be as soon as the first quarter of next year. And for readers who want to see that graph, if you go to the September 28th, almost daily grants, you can actually see the graph that Adam is talking about. It's a, it's a dramatic picture. So you see the, you see the, uh, the 10 year or five year average, right, of, of uh, inventory draws, and then you see 2017. So what else do I have to, oh yes, please, uh, listeners, if you have a question uh, for us, you can even ask one of Adam Rosenzweig, if you like, but do send them to the following email email address, editor at grantspub.com, editor at grantspub.com, which reminds me about mattresses and not just any mattress. I'm talking about the Casper, which is the sleep brand 
created to fill the niche called outrageously comfortable. That's this niche. It eliminates uh, commission-driven inflated prices, and it, it arrives in a box, and you'll say, how do they do that? It's so small, and uh, I don't know, it's, a, it's obsessively engineered, shockingly fair price. Uh, design features uh, marry foam layers for ideal firmness, just the right sink and just the right bounce, 100-night free trial, and I guess you get, you get the days in there too, right? 100-night free trial, no hassle returns. If you're not happy, you, you will be happy. So, uh, I don't know, we have, a, uh, we have a URL to tell you, and uh, please write this down. Uh, get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash grantpub. Now, that's G-R-A-N-T-P-U-B, and using the promo code grantpub, no S, grantpub at checkout. And there are terms and conditions, but they're, you know, they're not really, I, they're not so hard. So casper.com slash grantpub using promo code grantpub at checkout. Adam Rosenzweig, thank you for being here. It's been, uh, been fabulous. Thank you so much most, for having me. Most informative. Evan, I, I will see you around the campus. Eric, thank you for doing the dials as always. And we'll see you or rather listen to you or you listen to us or something. I mean, podcast listeners. See you soon. Bye. Bye.